Hey, Melissa, Peloton revealing its S1 filing, uh, officially catapulting its IPO in motion here with a placeholder of about $500 million for an offering size, although inevitably that number will change as it gets closer to its launch date. What about Peloton, uh, though, uh, for those trying to avoid that version of the COVID-19, uh, Peloton sales, they are surging as people uh, look to work out at home while gyms, as we all know, are closed. And that is sending the stock a lot higher in but the then, market. But then, almost suddenly, the world and Peloton's luck shifted. Gyms and offices began reopening as lockdown restrictions were lifted. And over a single year, the company lost nearly all of its pandemic stock market gains. How does a business disrupt not just a market, but a way of life? That is something that Peloton has been trying to do since it was founded in 2012. It's a journey that has had big highs, but also big challenges. I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Leader, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. In this episode, we look at the story behind Peloton, a company which was founded to help people work out at home on bikes and treadmills rather than in the gym. It's a company which has had extraordinary success in building a community of loyal users and offers lessons in how to scale up a growing business. Peloton bloated in 2019, and as you heard at the start of this episode, its shares surged during the COVID-19 pandemic. At the start of 2021, it was valued at nearly $50 billion on the stock market. But it's now valued at a lot less, just over $2 billion at the end of 2023. In this episode, we speak to Amanda Gilmore, the General Manager for UK and Expansion for Peloton, about the story behind this company. Peloton, you know, was founded over 10 years ago, really, to solve the problem of people want to work out, but there's many obstacles in the way that are stopping them from doing that. And the original kind of premise was that our founder, John Foley, loved boutique fitness, but couldn't get into the classes that he wanted in New York. The best instructors were always kind of booked up really quickly. And so he thought about how can we bring that experience to the home? And so he created Peloton, which, you know, brings the experience of an in-studio class into your living room and also brings the community that you get from working out with others in a boutique fitness studio into your living room. And over the past 10 years, that's evolved into a massive brand and a company and a community that people love at, with lots of different kind of offerings. And so now in my role in the UK, I'm focused on bringing that brand and that community to more and more people across the UK and really helping people understand that our offering has evolved beyond just a bike. We have lots of different fitness modalities now, and we pretty much have something that suits anyone that they can use at any time, anywhere they're going. And so, yeah, that's what the team and I are th thinking about. We're thinking about growing. We're thinking about how we can bring the Peloton community to more and more people and help explain what the offering is. When did the company first come on to your radar, both, I guess, from a professional and from a personal capacity? Yeah, so I actually um, started like being part of the Peloton community in 2014, I lived in New York and I lived right around the corner from the original Peloton Studios, New York. And so I was kind of just using it as like my local spin studio alongside Flywheel and SoulCycle. But 
I loved Peloton because the instructors were really, really good. And I loved like the leaderboard technology, which was kind of unique at the time. And so, you know, used Peloton then, loved it, and then moved away, moved overseas and watch kind of it have this meteoric rise from afar and, and see the success in the U.S. and in other countries. And then when Peloton decided to launch in Australia, I had the privilege of joining the team down there and being, um, you know, the first team to launch the product in the market and see it kind of through its first few years. And then I've come over to the U.K. recently um, to you know, help the team over here and help think about how do we not only grow in the UK, but how do we move into new markets that we don't currently operate in as well? What attracted you to the job when you were in Australia? Because um, you, you were working for Uber at, at the time, so you were working for one tech company. Obviously, you were aware of Peloton at the time. What made you go for, the, for that job? I think a few different things. Like one, I love working for companies that I'm a consumer of the product and it's something that like makes my life better. That's why I loved working at Uber. Um, the other thing that I was really attracted by was the idea of being that like on the ground zero, being the first team in the market to bring something that is a proven technology, a proven brand overseas, but helping interpret it for the local market and bring it to life for Australians in a way that they could understand and that would fit into their life. Like Aussies are really active, they're fitness minded society. And so that was our unique challenge down there and continues to be is how does Peloton fit into the life of Australians when they, it's a super crowded market, it's really competitive. There's lots of, you know, things that people, um, fitness related activities that people do. So how does Peloton fit into that lifestyle? That challenge was, was really unique and something that I was really excited about. Well, what do you think, looking back to those early days of the company and, and the growth in users that's been sustained since then, what was it that sort of fit? Because clearly there was product market fit, but then there's mm -hmm. something else that, that not only gained that traction, but kept it and kept a strong loyalty amongst people who use it. Yeah, I think we talk about like the three C's is kind of the key things that make Peloton what it is. One is convenience and that can be replicated, right? Like other brands can provide you a convenient solution to work out. But really the fact that that combined with the content that we create and the best in class content that we create is really the special sauce. Like our instructors are world renowned. They have such personalities. They are so incredible in what they do. And I think that's why people come back time and time again, is that you can find an instructor that suits your style, your fitness goals, and then you can change it up as, as your fitness kind of priorities change up as well. And then the third C is community. That I think is something that maybe wasn't part of the original ideation of like, we are going to build this global community that is super, super engaged but it has organically happened over the life of the company. And when they originally built the product, they built many elements into the product that help foster community. So the leaderboard, tags, you can high five people, all of these key elements were built into the product from the beginning. And that's allowed this community that is like nothing you've ever seen kind of grow organically over time. And then we've done things as a as a company to help foster that growth. But I think those in combination are like kind of the secret sauce that has um, helped really propel what is, yeah, product market fit, but bring it to another level. When you look at Peloton's business model, a few things stand out beyond the main numbers. For instance, how it has developed its instructors into stars in their own right. 
Look at American instructor Cody Rigsby, who got to the final of Dancing with the Stars, the US version of Strictly Come Dancing. Peloton also enjoys striking levels of loyalty and engagement from the millions of subscribers who pay to access its classes on their machine or mobile device. This includes a low churn rate, which is the percentage of subscribers who cancel their subscription in a month. When it comes to to churn rates, we have some of the lowest across industries, 1.5% churn out of um, the Peloton platform. And I think that comes back to that's something that we feel really proud about because, you know, all subscription services have churn, but especially fitness related ones do. Like fitness is hard to stick with. That is just, everyone knows that. I think everyone's probably had that experience. It's difficult to maintain consistency in a routine. So being able to have people stick with the platform, I think is a huge testament to our content and the community and all the aspects of our product. And it's something that we think about a lot is how do we keep building elements into the product that our members want? That's very much like, you know, enhancements that you see on the product, our artist series that we do, um, the music that we put out on our platform, like all of that is driven by what members want because we want them to keep coming back. Well, why has the brand been able to succeed in other markets? What's it got right with its international expansion? Because you touched on community and content there and clearly you have got those right. But but why? Because it's not necessarily an easy thing to do to take the model to the UK and Australia, very different markets. So how has that worked? Yeah, I think we, I mean, it's still a journey that we're on, don't get me wrong. But I think the thing that we have done well is take the elements of the brand that we know work, the content, the community, the the software and hardware itself, but then add this kind of localized layer on top of it. That might be through different local marketing campaigns. It might be through, you know, influencers and creators that we work with. Um, It might be through the partnerships that we have. So for example, here in the UK, we've recently partnered with the Liverpool Football Club. And that's really a way for us to show that we are locally relevant, connect with a local fan base. They are also a huge global fan base, but like connect with the local fan base that is going to help us resonate in the market. So I think that's one thing. And I I think the other thing that we've done is when we go into a new market, we do invest in growing the local community. We create Facebook groups for that local community. We host events. We bring them together in a physical space. We do group rides. Here in London, we have the Peloton Studios London around the corner in Covent Garden. And that's a place for us to bring people together physically. And I think doing that in new markets or any market allows us to kind of solidify we have a physical presence here. We are a real brand here and we are creating experiences for the, you know, the people of this market, not just taking something from the US and just plopping it into market and hoping that it, you know, does well. And that will continue to be a part of our strategy this year and for years to come is how we um, localize as much as possible. I want to ask you a bit more about content and community. On on content, two questions. How do you find the instructors and how much of a rigorous process do they then go to, to, to be found and then to be trained up? And secondly, then with the actual classes that they do, are they just left to put together their own classes or how do you sort of quality control what's being put out? Yeah, so the process to become an instructor is incredibly rigorous. We have a talent team that searches for them. We look at all different profile types, and then they go through a really rigorous vetting process. And then once they're eventually chosen, they go through a really 
long training process as well. Because if you think about, you know, they have to be an athlete, they have to be able to talk on camera, they have to know a lot about music because they do do their own programming and whatnot. Um, so it's really this multifaceted job that's not really like any other kind of fitness or talent job. It's a combination of both. And so finding those special people who can do that and then convey so much energy virtually is really difficult, but it's something that we invest a lot of time in because then, you know, once you choose an instructor, they're in front of millions of people and they're such a core part of the platform. In terms of how they think about their programming and whatnot, they work with the team, but they very much come up with you know, this is the program. This is how the class is going to run. This is the music that I'm going to use. They have this incredible software with all different types of music that they personally select. And they kind of put together a run sheet and that's what they use as reference on their screen during the classes. But that is something that I didn't even appreciate until I started working at Peloton is there's so much work that goes in behind the scenes, both from the whole production team, but especially the instructors to make sure that those classes are well-rounded, that they're going to deliver the results that people are looking for and that they're fun and entertaining as well. Um, it's really like quite a multifaceted job. For someone who, who hasn't used Peloton yet, what class or instructor would you say that they should go and do as their first one? Okay, well, I'm going to respond with it depends on what you like. <laughs> and, um, personally, for me, I have been using Peloton to get into running. Um, I'm not a runner by nature at all. And so I have been doing some runs with John who I find he is like, he has all different levels of difficulty, but he has some great beginner runs and he has great music and he's just got good chat as well. So it kind of keeps you entertained throughout. So I think if that's what you're looking for, go for John. But honestly, we have actually online, we have a, who's your fit, like, who's your best instructor quiz, because there's over 50 instructors. So it's hard to kind of know which one would be right for you. You can take the quiz and then you can find out who would be best match for what you like. On the community side, how do you build as a business and a brand, how do you build a community that fosters the sort of loyalty you've created here and creates a sort of community where you've literally built a studio just down the road where people are encouraged to come and have a coffee or get something to eat? So I think there's kind of three elements to building our Peloton community and and how we've been able to do it over the years. The first is that it is inherently built into the, the product. As I said, we've got the leaderboard, we've got the high fives, we've got tags, like that fosters connectedness between people, whether you like it or not. If someone gives you a high five, you're going to give them a high five back and you're all of a sudden creating this like level of connection that you otherwise wouldn't have. So I think the fact that it's built into many aspects of our product, you know, both on the hardware and on the app is critical. I think the second thing is we then have thought about, okay, well, where can we help continue that community onto other platforms and namely social media? So using Facebook and Instagram to help connect people when, you know, they're part of the Peloton community. And then oftentimes it just snowballs from there. Like we have over a thousand member created Facebook groups that people have just gone and created themselves. We have, I think, over 30,000 people in the UK member Facebook group. And so finding a place for them to meet off platform is also really important. And then I think the third layer of that is giving people a means to meet in person. So 
at the studio, you know, in group outdoor activities, we've done run clubs. We just actually wrapped up something called Peloton on tour, where we went around to five cities across the US and Europe and created all different types of awards and events and games and meetups for members um, just to give them that opportunity to come together in person. And they do it organically themselves as well. There's tons of member meetups that happen you know, every week that we're not involved in at all. So I think just giving people the tools to create that community and then fostering it a little bit, but also letting it run free and run wild has really been kind of like the the secret to the Peloton community success because it, it has grown at, at a rate that I don't think anyone really anticipated. How much does the company and, and you interact with those off-platform communities? We actually, it depends, but we actually, we get so much good feedback and insight from them that we do interact with them. So for example, if we're thinking about we want to try this new campaign or we want to try this new, you know, software approach. Like we will tap into those communities, um, especially when we were in Australia and we were so new and we're still kind of figuring out how is the brand resonating? What would make the most impact? We're definitely leaning on those kind of subgroups because they really have a sense of what works and what doesn't work and what people are going to respond to. So we're getting that voice of the member kind of directly from them. As the company has grown, and this sort of brings in some things you've spoken about already, but how has it managed the company to not just disrupt to market, but a way of life to get people to change the way they do exercise? What is the key to encouraging a potential customer to to take the leap, as it were, and become a, um, a Peloton subscriber? I think there's two things. I think one, like, it goes back to where we started, where we're just solving a problem that of a lot of people have actually. Um, and they might have it in different ways and for different reasons, but I think everyone fitness is important to so many people and everyone has a different relationship with fitness and, you know, their levels of motivation might vary. And so that was the problem that really was trying, we were trying to solve is motivation and convenience as it relates to fitness, which I think so many people can relate to. And then I think, as we've grown and over time, the key to our success and something that has helped us continue to kind of change people's lives is we have evolved a lot and we continue to evolve. I mean, obviously we saw meteoric success during COVID, but coming out of COVID, we know that habits change. Not everyone's locked in their houses. People are adopting a more hybrid fitness routine in the same way that they have a you know hybrid work routine now. And so we're thinking and developing products that help suit that new lifestyle as opposed to just resting on our laurels and saying, look, we're just going to be an at-home bike company. We're, we're not. You know, We've developed the app and many features of the app that help us travel with people no matter where they're going or if they're going back to the gym. We've got now got gym plans so you can do kind of guided workouts in the gym. So I think that's really critical for us is that we continue to evolve with the preferences of members and the preferences of the wider kind of you know, communities that we operate in to make sure that um, we're always serving people. The challenges that Peloton has faced include a slowing of growth as the world came out of COVID-19 lockdowns, but also challenges familiar to other businesses that have tried to expand quickly. This includes a recall of products that had faults, the scrapping of a planned new factory, and the departure of co-founder John Foley as chief executive. I think without a doubt, it's been 
we've seen a tremendous amount of change in the company. But I think here in the UK, I'm really excited about the prospects that we have because I really feel like we've just scratched the surface. We've grown such a tremendous community with you know our historical offering, but we just did a brand relaunch this past July because we felt like it was really important to tell people that you know we're not just a bike company. We actually have an offering that can be used by anyone at any time. And so off the back of that, we've introduced new offerings like our refurbished product. We've changed the way that we think about our app and we've introduced a free tier of the app. So we're really thinking about how we make um, Peloton as accessible as possible for people because that's going to help us grow. And also, like I touched on the the idea of making sure that we show up as a local brand and something that resonates with consumers here in the UK and solves the problems that they're dealing with. So I think that will be what we continue to focus on. And that makes me really excited about our growth opportunities because I think there's still tons to be had. Do you think the business overexpanded? In what way? Did it invest too much ahead of the growth that it was seeing? I don't think we overexpanded. I think we, you know, were in unprecedented times as it relates to the pandemic. And we were keeping up with that growth. And I think we've definitely, you know, had to rethink and readjust our balance sheet and our operating structure post that to make sure that we're set up for sustainable growth. But that's been the focus, you know, when our new CEO um, came into the role, that was his focus. And now we've really pivoted towards thinking about, okay, there's so much opportunity here. How do we continue to grow as a company um, and move into exciting new areas? Was the pandemic a, a good thing or a bad thing for this company's uh, growth? I think a good thing, really good thing. Yeah. It helped us, you know, connect with people, many more people than maybe like in a much more condensed time frame than perhaps we otherwise would have. And it taught us a lot about, you know, how to scale and grow a business really, really rapidly um, with unprecedented demand. So that's always interesting. What were the lessons about scaling? Because that's obviously really, really interesting because you, you did grow so fast. What were the lessons from that? I think that it actually comes back to sticking to those core tenets of what makes us us. And so during the pandemic, we were producing content from instructors' homes. We knew that that was still really important to allow our community to connect directly with instructors, to feel like they had that human connection with the people that they had grown to love, you know, pre-pandemic. And then I think also we just continued to double down on community and making sure that despite people being physically isolated, that they could come together on the leaderboard, feel that sense of connection. So focusing on those core tenants was really important. And then I think just making sure that we gave members the best experience possible by, you know, either getting them their product or their questions answered as, as quickly as possible was really critical. What's um, the biggest misconception about this company? What's the message that you would like to get out there that you think people get wrong about Peloton? I think people still think that Peloton is just a bike company. I really do. I think, you know, people, that's what they know us from, which is great. And that's our core product and still something we're super proud of. But I think the offering has evolved so much beyond that. I mean, we have 16 different fitness disciplines you can try. You can do yoga, you can do meditation, you can do stretching, strength, like I don't think that's well known. And I think that when people try Peloton, they realize, wow, this has got everything I could 
want and more and can help me, you know, no matter where I am in my fitness journey, whether I'm training for a 5k or I'm a professional athlete. But I think that kind of like depth of our offering is something that is not well understood. And I also don't think that people fully grasp the magic of that Peloton community, because when you meet someone who's you know, has a Peloton or as part of the community, they love it and they speak so highly of it. But if you're not in it, you're kind of like, what's the catch? Like, I don't get it. You know? Um, You've talked a lot about partnerships already. You talked about Liverpool, but there's also Lululemon and things you're doing with Hilton as well. How big are partnerships as part of this company's future? Yeah. So it's a core pillar of our strategy, both globally and here in the UK partnerships. And the reason for that is um, we're looking for partners that help us connect with like-minded communities, you know, people who share the same values as us. And that I think really comes through in our partnerships with the likes of Lululemon and Liverpool Football Club, but also with, we've recently partnered with the NBA and the WNBA, as well as New York Roadrunners. They all focus on growing and fostering communities that have a health and fitness angle to them. And so, yeah, it's a huge part of our strategy. We're really excited about it. The work we've done with Liverpool so far has been great. Um, We just launched our kind of first campaign with them, um, which is all focused on goal setting. And we've done some incredible content with one of our instructors, you know, doing a guided audio walk around Anfield and, and kind of telling the story and the history of LFC. And um, it's really fun to partner with brands like that, where there's just this real kind of mutually benefiting and and a shared interest and shared community and shared values. Cause then you can do really creative stuff. You know, it's not just us slapping a, our brand on a, um, on a t-shirt or something like that. We can create moments that are, are really impactful for both kind of groups. Obviously the company started off by offering fitness at home and in a, in a sense, taking people out of gyms. How much more are we going to see Peloton in gyms, whether that's in hotels or elsewhere? Yeah. I mean, through our kind of um, ethos of being for anyone, anytime, anywhere, what that means to us is, you know, gyms, hotels, when people are on the road, um, when they're working out outside. So we want to be in all of those places. We have a partnership with Hilton. We also have a partnership with Accor in Australia. And the focus of those partnerships is making sure that people continue to stay fit and healthy when they're traveling for business or leisure. We know our members love that and want that. It's also an incredible place for people who have never tried the Peloton brand to experience it. Many people try a Peloton for the first time when they're on vacation or they're on a business trip and it happens to be in the gym of a hotel. So it's a really interesting acquisition channel for us as well. And then as it relates to gyms, like I mentioned, we you know have introduced Gym Plan, which is in the app and helps give people guided workouts that they can do at the gym. Because we know that many people choose to have a gym membership and be a Peloton member, or they might be going back and forth between, you know, they want to use the gym in certain times of the year, whatever it may be, like we want to provide an option for them to be part of the Peloton community, regardless of kind of what their routine is or what their goals are. What are your options on price? Because obviously the price is is set at a certain point and you've gone below that and you've gone above that with certain different levels of certainly the bike. What's your view on how that may evolve in the future and how that may change to try and make it even more accessible to more people? I think accessibility is a huge focus for us in terms of making sure that we have a wide variety of offerings that appeal to all different price points, all different types of consumers. 
So with the app, we have moved to a three-tiered structure, which includes a free tier that you, so you can try the app, you can see how you feel. The kind of middle tier, we, um, you can try some of our on hardware classes, the, the top tier, you have the access to the full suite of everything. If you, you know, are, are an avid user and you want to get, get a piece of everything that we have to offer, but that really is focused on making sure that we have a range of accessible price points for folks. The other thing that we've done is we've introduced, um, Peloton refurbished, which we sell, um, on eBay and on our own website. And that is one, a lower price point, but it also appeals to consumers who value sustainability or might want to be part of the circular economy. And then the last thing that we've done, not here in the UK yet, but in the US and Germany is our rental program. So you can rent a Peloton bike for a set price per month. And that really appeals to people who value flexibility. They might not know what their living situation is in six months. They might not want to sign up to, you know, purchasing a piece of hardware and having in their home. They might just want to try it out for an extended period of time. They might be training for something specific. The Peloton rental program is all focused on on folks that are in that kind of category. So we'll continue to think about that and evolve it because, you know, that's how we are also going to grow is making sure that we have an offering that appeals to a really wide set of consumers. Amanda Gilmore grew up in Boston in the United States and started her career in consulting and tech. She moved to Australia and New Zealand for personal reasons and there worked for Uber helping the tech company to grow its new business. She moved to Peloton in 2021 to launch the brand in Australia and then moved to the UK in 2023 to take charge of Peloton's UK business. She's also been a coach to other female business leaders and has some interesting reflections on how to improve diversity in the business world. I was um, a coach within a, a program called Startmate in Australia, which is focused on helping women specifically. They have a bunch of different programs, but I was part of the um, one that was focused on helping women kind of work through career changes. It was many people who were lawyers or consultants or people in medicine, and they wanted to move into kind of the tech world and the startup world. And so I was a coach in that program, just kind of helping shepherd people through that. It was a journey that I had gone through starting in consulting and then moving into tech. And I loved being able to pass on some of those learnings and reflections that I had in that transition to folks that were going through it, but also just a great opportunity to kind of beat such a wide range of people on here, you know, I was absorbing a lot of the kind of insights from the other coaches as well. Like it was great for me. I was like, oh, okay, that's that's some interesting insights of how you think about your career, how you prioritize, you know, what what do you value in a company? What should you be looking for? Um, how do you think about roles and how you take on different roles to build towards your ultimate goal? All of those kind of um, things that I think, you know, are really important in terms of building a career. What were some of the most important things you wanted to pass on? Um, I think some of the things that I often talk to my kind of coaches about was the perfect role doesn't exist. And there is something to be gleaned from every role that you take on. I wore many hats at Uber and I think that was really helped me um, accelerate my learning curve because I just got stuck into a lot of different areas of the business. And so I think helping people kind of remove 
their ego from it, um, remove that kind of control factor where they want to just say, oh, I've gotten to the perfect position. That was a lot of what I tried to help people kind of work through is, you know, it is a journey and you might start in one role and then progress to another. And there will always be something that you can learn and take from those roles. And the the thing that might prompt you to move on is just when you stop learning rather than, um, you know, what the role title is. What's the biggest thing you've learned as you've gone through your career? Like how, when you look back to sort of those pre-Uber days even, how much have you changed and how differently do you, do you manage now compared to how you did? Um, I think that what I have learned or taken away the most is just that, you know, there are ebbs and flows in every aspect of your career. And it's kind of this like roller coaster and you should just learn to accept that as opposed to, again, getting too controlling or freaked out about it, that it's not going the way that you want. You know, companies ebb and flow, roles ebb and flow, how much you're learning ebbs and flows, and not to be too reactive to when you're feeling like you're in a low point, just kind of sitting in that a little bit, understanding why you're feeling that way, what is driving that. And then if it's, you know, lasting for too long, then you move on. But just kind of having that awareness of there's always highs and lows in anything that you're doing um and not to be kind of too knee-jerk reactive to that how in tech frankly has some issues with gender diversity whether it's in vc or, or tech companies themselves how does that change and how how much harder do you think you've had to work as a woman to progress in these industries i think that it is important for any company to be conscious and cognizant of the fact that gender diversity does not inherently exist in in the corporate world and put the right structures in place to help foster that, like from the very beginning of the talent and recruiting cycle all the way through performance cycles, um, how you think about your leadership team, like it should really be in all areas of the business. And I think that's something that we do well at Peloton is it, you know, from everything from recruiting all the way through how we think about, you know, performance cycles and talent management, like that is an element that is a consideration. And so I think you have to be conscious of it and you have to be aware of it and you have to not just assume that it's going to magically get solved by, you know, greater society. Like you really do have to be thoughtful about it. I think for me, do if I... I I don't know the answer to that if I feel like I've had to work harder. I think I have had I would say I would I've had to be conscious of my role as a woman in leadership and how I show up and not allowing people to assume that I will take on certain tasks just because I am a woman. You know, I think Someone said to me really early on um, when I was in consulting, don't automatically go get the water and start taking notes like that is historically like what people would ask women to do. Don't just do that. Make sure there's a roster. Everyone takes a turn. Don't always go get the the treats for the table. Like don't play into those stereotypes of what the woman in the room does. And I think so I've had to be more conscious about things like that and how I show up and making sure that I have a voice um, and I don't get spoken over or I don't get passed over. Or I don't get put into roles or stereotypes that inhibit me from actually contributing from a business strategy point of view. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely makes sense. And that 
just fascinating that right at the start, then she said about businesses inherently don't you know, diversity wouldn't exist. What? Why? Why is that? What do you mean specifically by that? Is that just because right now there are so many men in senior positions, it just breeds more lack of diversity? Yeah, I, I think that's what it comes down to. I think structurally, for lots of different reasons, corporates and business haven't really been set up to allow women to succeed necessarily. And that goes back for many, many, many years. So I think we have to be aware of what those structures have done and, and what ones still exist and and combat those. Uh, yeah, I think that's really where it comes from. I just want to ask you one last question, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that is to you, what makes an effective business leader? I think to me, an effective business leader is someone who is transparent and candid and has no ego in anything that they do. The ideas and the things that are going to help us grow as a company come from all different corners of the company and the team. And so my job as a leader is to just foster an environment where those can come to light, come to the forefront and teams feel empowered to go run at them really fast and without barriers. And so to do that and foster that type of environment, I think you have to be transparent, you have to be candid, and you have to just kind of get out of your own way. You've been listening to Business Leader with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. For more business news and analysis, check out businessleader.co.uk or sign up for our newsletter, Off to Lunch, at offtolunch.substack.com. Dot com.